Welcome to The Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. We are hanging out today with Dr. Jose Alvarado, Professor of Biophysics at the University of Texas at Austin. In the second part of our conversation, I remarked that Jose says, I don't know, very often and very easily. How does he do that? Where is the place of this attitude in academia today? I mentioned how I feel relaxed around Jose's energy and what it has to do with ego. We then discussed systemic power imbalance and exploitation by advisors in grad school. Is there room in today's outcome-oriented academia for generosity and openness? One of the things that you mentioned you wanted to talk about was something about interacting with others yes. as being sort of important to your personal philosophy. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. Um, just as, uh, as a researcher and physicist, uh, I draw lines at the edge of my knowledge and raise my hands and say, I don't know when it comes to what is life uh, and so on. I also don't know what is the self. I don't know what is the universe. I've encountered many explanations. Uh, and a lot of them are conflicting. And I just can't know right now. Um, and that's hard for me to grab onto uh, and to really uh, feel like I can um, make observations and uh, understand. Mm-hmm. But um, like I said, maybe you could argue that there are three infinities uh, in front of us. There's the infinitesimal, there's the universe scale, and then of course there's the you know ordinary meter scale of infinity. Uh, that is, maybe you can call it a singularity of a of a activity you know called life. Um, and uh, and I respect the fact that life is uh, as close to infinite as we can approach. Mm. Uh, in our everyday experience. And I know that I can, even though I don't understand myself and I don't understand the universe, I can observe, understand, interact with, shape, um, direct, and uh, inform the way I interact with other forms of life. Mm-hmm. And I, say, I hope I, it's still, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just have this like rising panic sometimes that I, oh, I forgot to, Press resume here because it happened once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Okay, I'm glad that it's recording. Yeah. yeah. So, how I treat other forms of life is my way of understanding life. And Hmm. that is very important to whatever it is that I am and to my understanding of who I am and what the universe is. Uh, So, so, um, you know, uh, interpersonal interactions are my expression of exploring this question of what is life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, the other thing that I think is kind of connected to that is I noticed during your talk that in answer to a lot of questions, you said, I don't know so easily and not just in answer to other people's questions you you 
you displayed things on your presentation where you're like, this is something that I don't really know what's going on over here. So you made an effort to put things in your slides that you're just going to tell an audience, I don't know what's going on here. I look at this equation and I don't know what's going on here. And I find that like really admirable, to the ability to just say, I don't know. And um, I think that attitude and that spirit is very important in science. Um, but I feel like a lot of academic culture, either consciously or subconsciously, conditions us against it. Like you have to sound like you know what you're talking about. And I've seen people a lot of the time use like difficult words in their writing, in their presentation, and they don't like to be found out that, oh, I don't know this. Um, so it's kind of refreshing to see this brand like, oh, I don't know, you know? So yeah, how do you feel about the, the I don't know or the lack of I don't know culture in, let me, in academics? Let me tell you a funny story. Yeah. Um, so I serve on qualifier committees, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I remember the first qualifier committee where I was the one in charge. Yeah. And the very beginning, I told everyone, yes, I'm in charge. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, please yeah. let me know, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I did my best uh, to, and the moment I said, I don't know what I'm doing, uh, my senior more, my senior more colleagues uh, who are also there, they, they said out loud, uh, yeah, you shouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you shouldn't express yourself that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, you know, of course, taken aback a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I didn't think too much of it, but of course I was starting to reflect on it more later on. Uh, and I do realize that that is, um, to me, a uh, lack of authenticity. Um, uh, if I were to, you know, kind of uh, pretend to other people that I knew what I was doing, mm. um, when in fact I have no problem expressing to people how vulnerable I am at that moment, that this mm. is my first time, I don't know, please help me uh, if I forget something or, you know, uh, I, and I'm counting on others to help guide me through this process that for, for which is my first time and I express all of that in clear and simple statement, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I'm not uh, afraid to ever admit that. Yeah. Um, uh, there are a lot of questions out there where the correct answer is really, I don't know, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, there's also questions out there where the answer is, we don't know, like mankind as a whole doesn't know. Um, yeah. And I tried to make a distinction between that and my talk. Um, I knew there were a lot of things I didn't know, but I figured, uh, there are concepts within what I presented that other people in the world I'm sure knew and I just needed to find them. Uh, but I also had the feeling that there were parts of my talk where I was really at the edge of knowledge, like standing mm -hmm. at a massive cliff where I was, where I felt pretty sure that we also don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I was terrified a little bit of that talk that I gave uh, because, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, standing at that edge uh, is pretty exhilarating as a researcher. Um, uh, uh, first of all, there's this feeling of, wait, is it really that we don't know or is it that I just don't know and I just haven't found the right paper yet? You know, there's, so there's a bit of ego there. Um, but then there's also like, where does this go? Like, you know, how could this possibly evolve? And you start thinking about the future, which of course turns out to always be different than you imagined. Um, so that kind of gets mixed up into it. Um, uh, and then of course, it's just this... Um, 
this exploration of the unknown, uh, which drew me into or kept me in research for so long. Um, uh, that's what our job is, is to always find that edge where we don't know and uh, we're going to go in and try to find out. We have to constantly not know. If we knew everything, then there's no research. Yeah. Uh, and there's no need to, you know, spend all this money in the lab, uh, hire graduate students uh, and, you know, get materials to do experiments. You know, like uh, the whole thing would fall apart. Um, uh, the whole reason research exists is because we don't know and uh, we have to uh, we have to be comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like my attitude on this has changed a lot. Uh, I would say, especially over the last like five or seven years, um, my attitude has become more and more of what I thought I knew before, I feel like I don't know anymore. Like even basic questions like, what is going on? Where are we? What's, go what's all of this? Yep. There are apparent answers that come up when you ask certain questions. But to me now, like all of it appears to be magic. Like <laughs> what is thinking? Yep. The thinking is something that we call the mind, which is a voice in the head interacting apparently with the universe. And inside the chemical reaction, some answers come up. But what is the process of thinking? How do we know that this is actually autonomous? Or is it just the universe that like, speaks into our head with a part of the same language that creates the universe itself? Maybe that's why we understand mathematics, because the universe and our mind kind of came from the same thing, from the mathematical principles. So how do we trust that we are, in fact, arriving at some kind of an independent answer to the question of what is the universe and so all of everything just appears to be like oh yeah i mean i really truly feel like i don't know anything of what's going on but it's kind of fun to be just floating in this in this kaleidoscope of not knowing <laughs> yet apparently things are happening there are sometimes apparent uh regularities and i know that this is a very strange and spooky perspective for a hard scientist to have. But I don't think that actually impacts, negatively impacts my research. I still follow the same like protocols, whatever. But at the end of the day, I would say these are the all the apparent knowledge that has appeared to me. But at baseline, I don't know any of what this is. Yes. And I don't know how I know whatever <laughs> I claim to know. Yep, I don't know yep, whether... Yep. Yeah. No, so I've had a very similar experience, or very similar experience which I expressed in different words uh, during my graduate school uh, time. And that is that over graduate school, my knowledge increased because I was acquiring new knowledge. But I was... I recognized that I was being exposed to all sorts of other knowledge that I knew I didn't know. Mm. And so although the total amount of knowledge increased, um, the fraction against that knowledge uh, divided by the total number of knowledge yeah. I knew that I didn't know, uh, that just kept exploding. And so I felt stupider and stupider <laughs> over the course of graduate school, even though I was acquiring new knowledge. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you could take that limit uh, to ultimately we know nothing. Um, uh, and so there's indeed a lot of mystery, uh, you know, as to like, you know, what knowledge is, what belief is and so on. But I think... Um, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, that uh, that you brought up that really uh, fascinates me uh, is um, although uh, it's like I can't experience what others experience, right? Um, even though uh, you know we can argue that there you know maybe uh, everything's non-dual uh, and uh, you know we're all one uh, and there's no separation between uh, ourselves. 
uh, I can't, I can't have your experience. Uh, somehow mm. that, that does in a way separate us. Yeah. Um, but one thing that does connect us oddly enough, and I think the one thing that we can really agree on, uh, and together with um, uh, very many other people, is math. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm amazed at how math is, has, is a sort of, I mean, I don't want to use the word universal because maybe there are people out there that just think mathematically different. I don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, everyone that's been trained in math seems to agree on the same thing, um, which is very remarkable. I think it's one of the few, like, truly uh, subjective things that we uh, share and experience with. Um, and uh, while I was studying uh, group theory uh, back in Germany, um, I came across a series of isomorphisms, uh, which really um, uh, which really uh, impacted me a lot. Uh, it has everything to do with this uh, thinking of linear of lines and loops. Um, so uh, you're, you're familiar with uh, the, the integers. Yeah. And you're familiar with real numbers. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what would you say is a real number? A real number. Uh, well, yeah, I was just going to say things that are not the square roots of negative numbers. But yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a valid definition. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's a better definition. There's definitely a better definition. Yeah. Yeah. And you can really approach it from different perspectives. Um, uh, the more I've, uh, I've uh, investigated real numbers, the more they scare me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, because when we think of, uh, what I like about mathematics is that there's different kinds of infinities, uh, and, uh, one of the differences is between countably infinite and uncountably infinite. Um, yeah. and so, um, uh, the set of integers, like, you know, minus two, minus one, zero, mm-hmm. one, two, and so on, uh, you know, you have infinitely many of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, curiously, um, uh, you can look at a set of all rational numbers. So you just divide all the integers by all the integers and you get all the rational numbers. So uh, between zero and one or between zero and any other rational number, you have what's called like a dense covering of uh, infinitely many rational numbers between any two rational numbers, no matter how close they are. Mm-hmm. So um, in that sense, the it's still countably infinite, but it's infinite and you can it's dense uh, and mm-hmm. it's everywhere. And yet still... The real numbers are even more infinite than that because yeah. uh, they fill in yeah. even more so uh, any, any of those spaces. Yeah. Um, you can show mathematically that if you take the real uh, the, the real numbers and you divide out the integers, mm-hmm. uh, that set is isomorphic uh, to uh, the set of uh, the half open set. So you have, for example, a zero, a set that contains the point zero and contains all the real numbers up until almost one but yeah. not including one yeah so you exclude one but you include all the other points below one yeah uh so you have this half open set uh which seems pretty unremarkable yeah um but if you do a little mental gymnastics and you kind of bend this open set and allow the allow one to overlap with zero mm-hmm. suddenly you've mm-hmm. closed that and you've created a circle yeah. indeed you can show that this set uh, is isomorphic to a circle isomorphic to the um uh, U1 symmetry group uh, of continuous rotations. Um, and so uh, so you have this whole chain of isomorphisms that connect this notion of a line uh, to this notion of a circle. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of when I, when I first encountered that, I was really sort of like, you know, blown away because um, 
not only uh, are real numbers that much more infinite than what we can already picture infinity to be, because mm. um, I can picture countably infinite. I just have to you know picture infinitely number of things. Yeah. Um, but then to picture something like a real number, which is even more infinite than that, I can't imagine to picture yeah. that. But the key to understanding that somehow lies in this isomorphism of the circle. Yeah. Uh, so uh, somehow this circle uh, expresses this kind of infinity that uh, um, that you just can't possibly imagine, uh, mm -hmm. and it somehow bridges this notion of line and circle. Yeah, I had once heard something like the the integers are as numerous as the stars in the night sky and the irrational numbers, or the rational numbers are like the stars in the night sky and the irrational ones is like the space between them. Mm. But they're both like different varieties of like infinity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, so what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, we were talking about, yeah, not knowing. We were talking about not knowing. You know, the thread between the interacting with other people and the not knowing, I think it has to do with a certain dissolution of the ego and ego is something that pervades all of academia yes so um i think i can feel it even like in a on a psychological on a physiological level i notice that talking with you and being around you is like i feel like pretty relaxed and i think there's a certain subconscious like we all like subconsciously suss out each other's like egos and I don't know, I guess the body kind of knows, okay, this is a space where I can kind of be. Um, so that is also kind of refreshing for me to experience because I feel like, yeah, the, the academia is a place where like egos just like run riot. Because, oh yeah, I'm so cool, I'm so smart. And I also have so much, like you get a lot of creative independence. And once you're tenured, it's like, you know, so that's not like a lot of the rest of the world where you have to answer to always to some kind of like a higher structure in a way like the rules in academia are made by the the professor so they're kind of at the top of this ecosystem and they've got this license of so uh one of the things that i wanted to ask is uh, also what i feel this might not be true academia is getting increasingly like more competitive maybe like if you see i don't know five decades ago or like maybe a hundred years ago what was academia it was a bunch of like maybe aristocrats or maybe whatever and there were not so many people with like phds they were doing some research they were communicating with each other and everything but now you know like phds are kind of like a dime a dozen and they're like everyone is trying to like get a phd do some research there's all this pressure to publish and it's becoming more and more intimately tied with like capitalism where there's like, you, you have to really think about the cash flow when you're doing science. And so I think in some ways science is becoming more capitalistic in that people are becoming more like end goal oriented. And that is causing a certain narrowing of the spirit where uh, I have seen and met scientists who are like, they don't want to talk about the research that they're doing because they're afraid of getting scooped. And, you know, they don't, they're not interested in like this open collaboration with other people and telling people like freely this, you know, here's a good idea, take it and things like that. Um, and like people are like worried a lot about their career and how to m 
keep going up the ladder these things all like scare me i don't know i might be like still a kind of like childish dreamer when it comes to thinking about how to do science but i want to do science in kind of like this dreamy sort of emotional way i don't want to think about these rules like i shouldn't discuss this with this person or whatever i need to keep thinking about my career like they really these ideas really stress me out so i noticed that you know already in our interactions you seem to be you know like pretty open to conversation you were giving me all of this time and you know on the phone you expressed you know like it felt like you were like had concerns and you cared about like the student body and you're talking about all this interaction interacting with other people do you feel like there is space in ac- the academia world today for like a kind of open and generous scientist i definitely think there is space uh, you just have to create it yeah. um it's not going to be given to you um uh everything you said uh, and as you saw I was nodding my head uh, very gravely with absolutely everything you said mm-hmm. uh and I'm not going to go into detail uh, but absolutely um uh we professors uh are uh, benchmarked against a series of numbers uh, that quantify our performance mm-hmm. uh and uh it's very easy to slip into this optimality mentality where uh you do everything possible to optimize these numbers uh, maximize your uh your status Yeah. Um and so for any uh, uh, research is a wonderful profession for anyone who uh is competitive mm-hmm. who uh gets a thrill out of um working in a high intensity environment uh and trying to race to the finish line and I know there are people who really have that mentality mm-hmm. and um and can thrive in this environment um uh uh I know I'm not that kind of person I burn out like that mm-hmm. um uh and so I have to learn to do research in my uh resonating in my own way mm-hmm. um and uh and that uh mean that meant for me that uh either i so there are parts of research that are really hot and really uh, active and where it's very easy to get scooped because a lot of people are interested in that yeah um if you work in these areas and if you're competitive and succeed you'll get all those numbers and you'll be decorated Um mm-hmm. I'm a complete opposite end of the spectrum. You could go and find problems that absolutely nobody's working on and you know you can easily make progress without competition, but then who cares about your results? You're not going to get cited. Your number you, you may publish but your numbers aren't going to mm-hmm. go anywhere because mm-hmm. uh what have you been working on? Mm-hmm. Uh and what I'm trying to do is find something in between where um I can allow for room for creativity for exploring new problems, but try to narrow those down so that way uh you know somehow relevance to you know all the you know hot literature that's going on. um and uh and try to make an argument for why am I studying this thing that maybe someone else hasn't been uh has been overlooked mm-hmm. um so that's my job as a researcher um uh it's easy also to um prioritize these numbers so much that you start treating uh the people that work for you as objects rather than as uh, yeah. life mm-hmm. um uh if you see them as a means to uh to attain your career goals uh you're going to squeeze out of them what you need at potentially at their expense mm-hmm. and um that's not how i see it of course uh i uh i have of course my own goals as a researcher but um i also uh sincerely wish the well-being of all of my uh lab members mm-hmm. and um we're in it together there's a sort of symbiosis there and i need to be aware of that symbiosis uh and uh and keep my finger on that pulse um so uh 
So, uh, you know, I'm open with my students about like, you know, how we professors are, uh, are evaluated and, you know, the, the, the competitive aspects of the world of research and so on. But at the same time, uh, graduate students uh, don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because the goal is to get a PhD and do, uh, do solid research, not to like, you know, revolutionize the world. That comes if you decide to do a postdoc and uh, that's when it becomes stressful. Um, uh, but uh, but graduate school, uh, I see it as my job to you know uh, allow my graduate students to uh, uh, to flourish in their research projects, explore their own ideas, uh, while at the same time also um, uh, uh, you know resonating with my own interests, and you know we figure a way out together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and. Uh, uh, yeah, and of course, I, I don't require that my students publish in Nature, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, that's that's an unreasonable thing to expect out of uh, an undergraduate student, uh, a graduate student. You know, they're researchers in training, and uh, you know, we're just uh, learning about the world of research there. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, ultimately, I think it really does come down to how you treat others around you. Um, uh, I, I was reading uh, this article about um, a tech writer uh, who uh, was uh, who writes about like you know the future and was interviewed uh, or like was asked to speak um, you know to like you know a group of uh, like you know ultra billionaires uh, you know about like you know the future and that technology and so on um, uh, turns out it was just a group of like you know five like you know ultra wealthy people um, and they started peppering him with questions about like, you know, which, which cryptocurrencies going to win out and like, you know, uh, what's going to, uh, I don't know, like uh, other questions about like, you know, which technologies are going to win. And then of course he started getting more serious, like, should I move to New Zealand or Alaska, you know, which is going to be more protected from the climate crisis. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, what kind of underground bunker should I build, you know, in case if there's a, you know, a nuclear war or a solar storm or whatever. Uh, and then it started getting even darker, like, um, you know, how do I protect uh, my property against, you know, the horde of angry poor hungry mothers, you know, that have their babies uh, that want to steal my food. Uh, I need a, uh, security guards, but how do I keep them obedient? You know, should I give them obedience collars? Uh, you know, so that way, uh, you know, they answer to me and not to them. Uh, and so this, this writer was uh, writing about his experiences and he was trying to convince them like, hey, no, the, the answer is just invest in people, treat them as, you know, your friends uh, now uh, and that will come back uh, and, you know, benefit you in the long run. Uh, and according to this author, they were zero interested in that kind of mm. thinking, uh, Marxist ideology maybe, or something like that. Um, uh, so I see, uh, I see it as a grave error uh, in, from my perspective when we start to regard other life as mere objects. Um, mm. And this is the one criticism I have of self-organization is that, oh, you know, it's just all matter anyway. Mm. Uh, there's nothing divine or sacred about it. Uh, and, then, uh, uh, and then I'm just going to treat it like objects and that's it. Um, but then the other criticism I have of like this whole like, you know, divine thing is that like, you know, oh, you know, now it comes with all of this like, you know, shoulds and shouldn'ts uh, and then, uh, you know, cause me stress as well. So what do I do? Um, it's hard to find for me the right approach to how to look at life. And so I just try to approach life from a position of um, absolute respect. Mm -hmm. I don't know where life came from. I don't know how it arose. Um, but uh, I see an infinity in life uh, that uh, amazes me. Um, I uh, respect life. Uh, it doesn't mean that I uh, have to completely eliminate violence in my life. I'm a vegetarian, lifelong vegetarian, um, uh, but uh, I have a leather bag. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, uh, 
I have to eat plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have to draw the line somewhere to survive. Um, but at least uh, in my research, uh, we use rabbit muscle uh, in order to, uh, you know, uh, purify the proteins that we use to study. Um, and for me, uh, the way forward is not to like, uh, you know, uh, to completely eliminate violence uh, or to, you know, treat all life as objects, but rather just to simply acknowledge my impact on my surroundings, uh, on the life around me. Uh, uh, keep that into consideration as I also keep my own self into consideration um, and try to find a way forward that works for uh, as many uh, as many around me, including myself, as possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's great that you kind of naturally um, arrived at this um, topic because my, I think my final point that I wanted to talk to you about uh, was this power asymmetry between supervisor and student mm-hmm. in in academia and I feel like academia is this like this this great wonderland in my head ever since I was a kid because I was just so interested in science but one of the big blemishes that I discovered firsthand was this power asymmetry uh, and in fact the first research group that I joined in graduate school the working in that research group ended up being like a living nightmare mm-hmm. and it was because the supervisor treated the students as basically some kind of like a work production machine with no internal lives, not, nothing else. And uh, so, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was really bad because that was my first exposure mm-hmm. to doing research. So it colored my entire perspective of what academia is like. I didn't think that there was anything outside of this. So I was just waiting to leave academia and just go to industry. So it killed all my childhood hopes and dreams, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, um, thankfully, I got out of that group and joined another group where my current advisor is the exact opposite. Mm. And work still gets done, and it's yeah. like good quality work, yeah. but the approach is like completely opposite. Mm. Um, but the thing that disappointed me even more than an individual who decides to exploit their students is there was some kind of an indifference and even a little bit of an encouragement of that sort of implicit encouragement of that sort of exploitative attitude at the systemic level because I saw that there were very few checks and balances against an advisor like that Mm. mostly how they conduct their lab is their business Mm. other people in the department are kind of at their same level and they don't want to get in your business they want to leave each other alone this is not like a company where there's some kind of an HR manager on Mm. top of everyone keeping Mm -hmm. these checks this goes back to the dark side of the freedom in academia And the other thing was that this person was like pretty good at producing good quality content out of the lab. And this is what the external world sees and values them for. So they're like, oh, this is cool science and we're going to fund this person more. And the department sees that, oh, this person is bringing in a lot of research grants and, you know, you know, getting a lot of the headlines. So we value this person. And so what I realized was that I was disappointed by the lack of uh, a systemic, uh, at the level, as a systemic level, a concern for the well-being of the students. Somehow the quality of the mentorship or anything did not figure in, um, in how well supported an advisor would be by the department. Like that feedback is just nowhere. It doesn't figure anywhere. It does not count towards whether they'll get promotions or, or, or grants or whatever. It's just this like 
this machine and all the, 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 the system cares about is the output of the machine. So in fact, tacitly, a lot of these people with these attitudes are going to get further in their career in such a system than other people who actually care about their students. And this is what seemed like deeply kind of unfair to me, that I feel like this is something that, especially in this time where academia is becoming more competitive and kind of more capitalistic, that I feel like you need to like take a step back and maybe maybe institute some like systemic um, monitoring or checks and balances and things like that. And in my couple of recent podcasts, I've brought this up to other other scientists. So I feel like this is something that's kind of important. Uh, one of one of so my master's thesis advisor said he does not believe that having like punitive measures is going to help much. But we, he said, we want to bring up the next generation of scientists so that they, in their very nature, don't want to exploit other people. But I think that's still kind of leaving it up. Like you were saying, you were concerned about, you know, the well-being of your students, but that still leaves it up to the individual. And, oh, yeah, if you're a nice person, great. If not, well, good luck to your students. So, I don't know, what are your thoughts about that? So... Uh, this comes back again to the original question you asked me, what is life? Mm. Um, and some people believe that life is just ordinary matter that somehow self-organized uh, from, uh, you know, from the dust and uh, it's just some sort of a nonlinear dynamic robot. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can do whatever we want with these robots because uh, they're just objects mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have zero regard for them. Um, uh, now, of course, We've self-organized in such a way that laws have emerged, and so we can do absolutely everything. Um, but there's still a lot of things that are legal that uh, that I believe are wrong. Uh, and for example, um, uh, uh, this this form of uh, uh, of uh, treating graduate students uh, as uh, worker objects, uh, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, doesn't agree with me. Mm -hmm. um, but it's legal, mm -hmm. and as you can see, uh, the university uh, even doesn't have uh, many mechanisms in place to. Uh, address this problem. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a common problem uh, across many research environments. Um, don't even get me started about my time at MIT. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, so uh, the the world of research, but honestly, in a lot of other places too. You mentioned that big companies have HR departments, but uh, there's still failures uh, across uh, uh, you know, across the private sector as well. Um, I think um, I think on the one hand, a lot of humans. When they view life as mere matter, uh, they don't have this respect for the other that uh, that I think is so essential for building a relationship. Meanwhile, there's also another extreme where uh, you know you can say like, oh, like I have like you know, there's this um, you know concept of uh, dominion in Christianity, mm -hmm. um, you know where like oh you know we humans uh, you know uh, we have this special place in this planet uh, and you know we have a complete dominion over all other forms of life, uh, and we're going to treat animals. Um, the way we want to, because we're allowed to. Uh, uh, even even Pope Francis uh, sort of uh, you know swung against that to a certain extent because he started talking about responsible dominion, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think that's a very a key word uh, that uh, that is extremely relevant to the way we treat other forms of life on this planet uh, uh, that we share planet with. Um, so I see these two extremes of looking at other forms of life. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you're going to be treating animals uh, also like objects, what's going to stop you from treating other humans as objects? Mm. Um, uh, if your religion is not going to tell you uh, anything about uh, how you how you uh, uh, treat other humans, and if the laws are also not going to tell you how you treat other humans, and the system is telling you you need to maximize these number of points in order to succeed in your career, uh, nothing is going to stop you uh, from being able to do that unless you stop your own self. Um, so uh, I wonder what is necessary now uh, in this century to move forward uh, to uh, address this question of what is life uh, and how can we respect life um, uh, in a way that um, that allows us to uh, treat each other right the way we'd like to you know like for others to treat our own selves. There's a certain kind of uh, symmetry uh, in interpersonal relationships uh, that isn't always there, right? Like, you know, uh, for example, parents and children, you know, um, uh, uh, hopefully, um, in many cases, parents give uh, as much as they can and children take as much as they can. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, honestly, I think uh, advisor uh, graduate student relationships are very sim should be very similar, uh, where the advisor gives the student as much, you know, freedom to explore as possible while still guiding them in a way that's productive to both. Um, but the graduate student should be taking uh, and, you know, should be using these resources to advance themselves. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, even in this asymmetry, there's still a sort of reciprocity um, and respect for each other uh, that I believe uh, should underlie every interaction with other forms of life. Mm. Um, so I don't know of a framework that expresses this in a codified fashion, mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, certain religions. I'm familiar, you know, as a scientist, um, uh, you know, uh, approaching the world from at least a physics point of view, uh, and I just see both uh, sides lacking uh, in uh, in the sort of fundamental respect for life uh, that I try to cultivate. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty much all my questions. I had a a little additional follow-up question about the I don't know that I forgot to ask. Okay. Um, what I was wondering is, has it always been the case with you that you're like, oh, I don't know, and, and, and that attitude comes naturally to you? Or was it something that you deliberately developed over time? And, and, if, and if it is something that to someone does not come naturally or they have been conditioned out of it, in academia or whatever, do you have any tips for how they can rekindle? Because you kind of have to swim upstream in order to develop this attitude of, hey, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I read on one of your uh, one of your podcast summaries uh, that you uh, that you uh, describe yourself as an atheist. Yeah, at that time, I guess I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I've never used the word atheist uh, to describe myself. I've always used the word agnostic. Yeah, uh, and I see a big difference there. People argue about like you know precise meaning of these words, but I, I for me, agnosticism uh, is completely I don't know, yeah. and uh, it's always resonated with it, always uh, it's resonated with me since uh, at least a teenager, mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, I uh, you know I I I've explored you know as an agnostic uh, I, I've been able to 
self-investigate this question of belief and you know, uh, you know how, how much of a step of faith are you willing to take in your own life uh, to, um, uh, to help see the world around mm -hmm. you. Um, and uh, that's something that I take very seriously for myself. Uh, and uh, I, uh, in, uh, exploring the space of knowledge and belief uh, is a, for me is a very interesting question. Um, but I always start from this neutral origin of uh, agnosticism where I try to mm -hmm. reduce as much as possible um, how much I claim to know. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as you see uh, over the course of graduate school, uh, I realized uh, how little I knew compared to how much knowledge is out there that I know I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's a very humbling position to be in, uh, to uh, admit to yourself you don't know. Um, uh, I don't think uh, being an agnostic is sort of giving up or anything. Uh, I think uh, it's just trying to um, uh, trying to be open mm -hmm. and curious and self-critical, um, uh, but also welcoming. Mm -hmm. um, and uh and flexible um uh so so if anyone is uh you know if anyone resonates with these kinds of qualities um uh, i think uh they would naturally tend towards uh you know investigating their own knowledge their own beliefs uh and you know try to explore how much or how little you're willing to grab onto. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think those were all my questions. So right. yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for a very engaging discussion. And thanks again for giving your time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for hanging with Jose and me today in the Room of Lives. Take care. Until next time. Oh, and if you or someone you know wants to come on my podcast to have a chat or you know, even just meet me and get to know each other without coming on the podcast, just email me at aubranil at aubranil.net. Um, that email address is also on the podcast description. All right, ciao.